0: Keto LLC, it's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. Today on the show we're talking about blaming the victim. Why does this happen? Where did it start? Why do we feel like it's our fault if we can't lose weight? Doctors tell us to eat less and exercise more. That should work, right? One of the uh,
1: most unfair things we do to people is that we tell them that obesity is really their fault. What uh, we say is things like, well, they let themselves go and they're not taking care of themselves, as if the obesity that they're suffering from is their fault.
0: That's Dr. Jason Fung, Medical Director and Co-Founder of Intensive Dietary Management in Toronto.
1: What it really comes down to is the fact that we believe in this sort of calorie-centric model, this sort of calories-in, calories-out model, and therefore, since we are in control of our calories-in and calories-out, therefore, obesity is somehow the victim's fault. That is, the person who is suffering from the disease of obesity is at fault for causing that disease. And the evidence to support this really just does not exist.
0: And we'll get to that evidence in just a minute. But first, I want to introduce you to an IDM patient. Her name's Kim Klein. and Her mother died in 1987, and at 20 years old, she gained 100 pounds by eating her feelings. And one day, she was in nursing school and passed out.
2: One day, I just kind of passed out. And all the nurses flooded around me, the soon-to-be nurses, and I went to the hospital. And lo and behold, I was diabetic. So I went on oral meds, and um, you know, at the highest weight that I got at that point, I was two hundred and eighty-six pounds. I don't know; it was just it was just just that way for a long time. And then there was a certain point where um, you know I just kind of kept gaining weight, and I went on. Uh, insulin. And then that was that way, you know, for a long time.
0: So for 20 years, Kim struggled with the fact that no matter what she did to try to control her weight, it wasn't coming off.
3: For the majority of Kim's life, she had sort of struggled with weight. And then that weight struggle led to a struggle with diabetes.
0: And that's Megan Ramos, co-founder of Intensive Dietary Management and director of the IDM program.
3: While she was trying to really tackle her diabetes and try to lose less insulin, her doctors, her friends, her colleagues, her family, everyone was on her to lose weight. But she just couldn't. She could not lose that weight despite following these dietary guidelines that her doctors and her colleagues and her friends and her family were telling her she had to follow and follow better. But she was following them and she just couldn't get results. And she felt like such a total failure but I think I just
2: didn't care. (laughs) Truthfully. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I comforted myself after my mom died, is that I told myself that I'd be with her soon. You know, my grandmother had died at 41. My mother died at 41. And I thought, "Eh, I don't have long to go. And I'll just be gone at 41, just like them. So I don't think I really cared.
0: Now, the standard belief from the medical community is that, well, you know, Kim had some emotional issues, and she just stopped caring about her health, and if she only cared a little bit, she would eat
4: less and exercise more. She must have no willpower at all. Okay, so there's this idea that fat people have no willpower. I was actually just reading a email today from a physicist who said, you look around and you see these fat people in restaurants, and they're eating enormous amounts of food,
0: That's award-winning investigative journalist and author Gary Taubes.
4: Therefore, the assumption is that eating enormous amounts of food makes them fat to begin with, and the reason they eat enormous amounts of food is because they have no willpower. It's, again, a wonderful idea, but it assumes that somehow they are behaviorally, morally, ethically different than you and I. And just like
0: Jason, Gary says that there is little evidence to support that idea
4: the reality is the world is full of uh, obese individuals who not only have extraordinary willpower and are su- extraordinary success with other things they do in their life um, but also eat relatively little food. In fact you can find populations around the globe that suffer from what's called the dual burden of obesity and malnutrition and these are exceedingly poor populations where the children are not getting enough food to, to prosper to thrive and yet the Uh, older population has high levels of obesity and particularly the women who often tend to be the hardest working members of these populations. So let's back up a bit and talk
0: about the obesity epidemic. An epidemic that happened in the United States over just 32 years. A single generation. Dr. Fung explains the numbers.
1: So if you look at the epidemiology of obesity, if you go back to 1985, Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, if you look at their maps of obesity, uh, they keep them every five years or so. And what you find is that there was not a single state in the United States that had an obesity rate
5: above 15%. That was in 1985, but only five years earlier, in 1980, The United States Department of Agriculture started publishing food guidelines.
0: That's Richard Morris, who co-hosts the
5: Two Keto Dudes podcast with yours truly. In the first publication, they told us to eat a variety of foods, maintain ideal weight, avoid too much fat, saturated fat and cholesterol, eat foods with adequate starch and fiber, avoid too much sugar, avoid too much sodium. And if you drink alcohol, do so in moderation. They also said that, and I quote, If you limit your fat intake, you should also increase your calories from carbohydrates to supply your body's energy needs. And on the next page we read, The major health hazard from eating too much sugar is tooth decay. And then, contrary to widespread opinion, too much sugar in your diet does not seem to cause diabetes. This is how the US government started the discussion with Americans, and how the rest of us in the world followed along.
1: What? What happened since then is that obesity has steadily risen in the United States. The most recent results were quite horrific, actually. Not a single state um, had an obesity rate below 20%. So from 1985, 30 years later, you went from not a single state above 15% to not a single state below 20% and only three states below 25 percent. So that is the very, very worst state in 1985 was still significantly better than the very best state. In other words, you've gone from uh, prevalence of obesity somewhere around 10 percent to something closer to 30 to 40 percent of the adult population of the United States so if you think about it there are somewhere over 300 million people in the United States what you're really talking about is somewhere around 150 million people who are suffering weight
0: issues the food pyramid was established we were told to follow it generally Americans did they cut back on saturated fat they started eating more vegetable oils They started eating more simple carbohydrates. And now we have this obesity epidemic. Can we really blame obese people for not having the willpower to stick to their diets?
1: You have, imagine, uh, you have a classroom of 100 children. And if one of those children fails, then you can say, well, that's the child's fault. They didn't study. But if all of a sudden you have 50 kids out of 100 failing then you simply cannot say that it's the child's fault. It's ridiculous. It's clearly the teacher's fault for not providing the guidance that is necessary to pass the test. So in the obesity test, what we have are 30, 40, 50% of the children failing, and yet we turn around and blame those
4: children. So this is, again, a hangover from the 19, early 20th century and the most simplistic thinking on obesity, where you think, well, uh, we have this idea of the laws of thermodynamics, that if somebody gets fatter, they have to take in more energy than they expend, and then we... Uh, use that to assume that they get fatter because they take in more energy than they expend. And then we look around and we see obese people and they're eating a lot and they're not running marathons. So therefore, overeating, gluttony is a cause and sedentary behavior or the biblical term sloth is a cause and I think it's almost incomprehensibly, naively simplistic, but nonetheless, this is still how much of the research community, much of the public health community, and the dieticians and the nutritionists, invariably the thin ones, think about why the fat ones got that way. So, don't blame the children for being obese. I get that.
0: But who gets the lion's share of the blame? Doctors? Nurses? Pharmacists? Drug companies? Food companies?
1: Who? I think we should blame the dietary guidelines and the advice that we give people, this sort of low-fat, count-your-calorie sort of advice. It simply has not worked. Regardless of whether you think it should work or it shouldn't work, the empiric evidence is that it does not work at all.
0: The calorie-centric model being if you want to lose weight, you should take in fewer calories and burn more calories. And this assumption has guided the USDA guidelines to tell us what we should be eating and what we shouldn't be eating.
4: I got a hold of the uh, the brief that was filed by the city of San Francisco to argue that they should get to have this label. Gary
0: Tobbs is talking about a law that they tried to enact in San Francisco to require labels on sugary beverages. The sugar industry went to court to try and squash it and they lost, but then they appealed and they won the appeal based on the idea of energy balance, that a calorie is a calorie and that you should be taking in less calories and expending more if you want to lose weight.
4: And in it is the expert testimony from their expert witness who is the... Most influential nutritionist in the world. Okay. As he himself says in expert testimony, he talks about his 1500 papers that he's published and that he's about the, that they're the top five most cited scientists in the world. So in his expert brief, he has this. I'm going to read this because he's, this is his definition of what causes obesity. So he says obesity arises as a result of an energy imbalance between calories consumed and calories expended, creating an energy surplus and a state of positive energy balance, which in turn results in excess body weight over time. Okay. So this is the world's leading nutritionist making a sense. And I said here now, here's the exact, the logical equivalent of that. If we're talking about wealth. So I took his sentence and I just made it about wealth instead of obesity. And this is what it says. It's the exact equivalent. Wealth arises as a result of a money imbalance between dollars earned and dollars spent, creating a money surplus and a state of positive money balance, which in turn results in excess wealth over time.
0: And how profound is that? Is there anything in there that says why one person is wealthy and why one person is poor? Is there any advice on how to get wealthy? No. Here's Jason again.
1: So this is where the blame comes in. If nutritional authorities, doctors, dietitians, dietary guideline committees, university professors, academia... They could either do one of two things. They can either say, well, the evidence is that our advice is really very poor. Um, We need to find something else. We are wrong. Sorry about that. They could do that. Or they could simply say, well, it's not our fault. Our advice is really, really good. Even though 50% of people are failing, our advice is good. It's the person's fault. So they shift the blame from themselves to the general public. And it's a game called blame the victim. So somehow these obese people brought it on themselves, even though nobody
0: really wants to be overweight or obese. And that's where Kim found herself. She followed the guidelines. They didn't work. She assumed it was her fault, but she took it a step farther to apathy. Remember what she said.
2: You know, my grandmother had died at forty one. My mother died at forty one, and I thought, eh, "I don't have long to go, and I'll just be gone at forty one, just like them." So I don't think I really cared.
1: And it's gone to the point that even the people themselves believe that it's their fault, and this is where it starts to get very dangerous. So people start to give up hope. Um, they get depression. They have things like learned helplessness, where just that they learn that nothing they do helps, so why even try? That is to say, if you follow the best advice of your doctor, dietitian, nutritional authorities, um, reduce your calories to 800 calories a day, cut out all the fat, um, and you still don't lose weight, then at some point you're gonna say, what's the point? Why don't I have uh, Krispy Kreme donuts and pizza because my weight's going to be the same anyway.
3: Kim chose to follow the dietary guidelines provided to her by her colleagues and her physicians and other people in her community. But these these low-fat, high-carbohydrate dietary guidelines just cause her insulin levels to go higher.
0: Ah, now we're talking about insulin. As Dr. Fung explains, the calories-in, calories-out theory, sometimes referred to as energy balance doesn't take into account insulin.
1: The question we want to know is, are all calories equally fattening? That is, 100 calories of brownies, is it the same, does it have the same fattening effect as 100 calories of grilled salmon? And the answer traditionally, if you ask your grandmother, and if you ask anybody with common sense, really, is no, no. They are not the same at all.
5: 100 calories of brownies contains sugar and flour, both of which will cause your pancreas to secrete a large amount of insulin in order to metabolize them. 100 calories of salmon, however, contains some fat, which doesn't need any insulin to metabolize, and protein, which will result in a small amount of insulin.
1: What does insulin do? Well, it tells the body to store body fat, It turns on de novo lipogenesis. It tells the body to stop burning the stored energy. So it basically uh, is an energy storage hormone. Um, If you think about it, that's a very good thing. If you're eating food, insulin goes up, your body stores energy instead of burns it. So if insulin doesn't go up very high, the body does store a little bit, but not a lot of energy, and it's going to use the rest.
3: Of the three macronutrients, carbohydrates, protein, and fat, carbohydrates cause your insulin levels to go up the most, whereas protein and fat don't have a whole lot of impact on your insulin levels. Protein only does if you eat it in excess, but it's really the carbohydrates that drive it up. So not only was Kim shooting herself with insulin injections that made her hungry and crave all of the wrong stuff, she was eating these high carbohydrate, low fat, fat diet that was recommended to her by her medical community that was further increasing her insulin levels that made her more hungry, made her want to eat the wrong stuff. Like this is so out of Kim's control. This is completely beyond any willpower issues that any of us struggle with on a day-to-day basis.
0: Kim began her long climb out of darkness in 2001 when she stumbled on a program called the Landmark Forum. It wasn't about diet per se. It was a motivational program, and for the first time in her life, Kim knew that she didn't want to die at 41, and she didn't have to.
2: That was when I started taking actions. Now, I'm not saying they were very effective actions. I was very well into taking insulin at that point, and it was a pretty frustrating process because I wasn't really reversing anything for sure.
0: She started taking baby steps trying different meds and diets. She had to do something, but nothing was really working until 2011, 10 years later.
2: Someone said to me, are you sure that you've left no stone unturned in your quest to be healthy? And I'm like, well, how could anyone ever really say that? And at this point, I was taking 300 units of insulin every day.
0: This friend had had bariatric surgery, and Kim was beginning to think that was the only way out. So, she did the gastric sleeve procedure, which works by removing a large portion of the stomach, leaving a banana-shaped sleeve that connects the esophagus to the small intestines.
2: After the surgery, I did get down to only taking 30 units of insulin, and I lost 140 pounds. So I went from 360 down to 220.
0: It took a year for those 140 pounds to come off, but they did. And Kim enjoyed that state of health and energy for a good two years. And then?
2: I started having problems with insulin again. And I went to the doctor and he said, well, Kim, it's either you start taking more insulin to bring your blood sugars down because they had... inexplicably gone to 600. He said either you bring it down or or you're going to (laughs) die. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem much of an option anymore. I mean, I only had a stomach the size of a banana.
0: Once again, Kim felt defeated. Blamed herself. And then...
2: I gained 20 pounds in 10 days. And over the course of the next couple years, I gained 30 more. And then I gained 20 more. So I gained back 70 of the 140 that I lost.
0: This was, indeed, Kim's darkest hour. She had followed her government's advice on how to eat, listened to everything her doctors told her, and continued to gain weight. Finally, she had a glimmer of hope in the form of gastric sleeve surgery. Even though she was eating a fraction of the food she used to eat, what she ate was causing her insulin to rise and her blood sugar to spin out of control. Not only was she back where she started, now she had 75% of her stomach removed. She couldn't binge eat if she wanted to. Now, obviously, that's not the end of our story. Kim was persistent. She had grit. She continued to search for answers. And in May of 2017, I was at a conference. It's called uh, the Conference for Global Transformation.
2: And I was in a a session, a breakout session. And the guy who was speaking said, you know, you can take on projects that really matter to you. And you don't have to get caught up in results. All you have to do is determine who you're going to be. And I'm like, well, I want to be vibrant and alive and free. And I want other people to be free from medication. I just think overall, the world is really over-medicated, in my opinion.
0: One thing we didn't tell you about Kim is that she's a hospice nurse. She sees people at the end of their life. Ironically, she sees them get better
2: when we work with them to get off medications that they, it's easy to take them off because they're at the end of their life. But what if people could be off medications before they're dying?
0: Kim left that conference being moved and inspired. And then? And then, as these things happen, a couple days
2: later, a friend of mine from Cleveland sent me the information about Dr. Fung and uh, my dad had just died in April, and he had been diabetic for 40 years. And at the end of his life, he he you know what was on his death certificate was kidney failure. So I hear Dr. Fung say, you know, the medical community has just kind of got it all wrong. Type 2 diabetes is reversible we know that now but what's not reversible at least this is what I heard him say maybe he didn't use these exact words but that kidney disease blindness and amputation are not reversible and since I don't have any of those things going on yet it was just like now's the time.
0: So now Kim knew she had to lower her insulin and for the first month she was really on her own and for a few days she got rid of all sugar and starch. And then
2: June 1st, I started a nine-day fast, and I had water, tea, coffee with heavy whipping cream, and I
0: did that for nine days. Wow, nine days. I asked him if it was hard.
2: Uh, I'm not going to say it was easy. I mean, emotionally, I'm not going to say it was easy. That was the hard part. Physically, eh, not too bad not too bad. It was that um, I ended up calling it habit hunger. You know, like I'm driving home from work. And of course, now it is time to eat, isn't it? (laughs) So those were the hard things. Or when, you know, my husband who did need to eat himself was cooking something and I'd be like, oh, wow, that looks really good. I, I felt like there was a possibility of something that I had wanted for 30 years and could never, ever obtain.
3: I could easily tell when I met with Kim that this was her last hope. And she was so, so determined that this was going to be it. Fasting was going to be it for her, and it was going to reverse her diabetes, and it was going to give her that control. She had all of this hope, and I just wanted to harness it, and I wanted to keep doing these longer fasts with her. I love this that Megan says to me, Kim, you just need to keep
2: fasting the sweetness right out of you. And she said, your body has been storing sugar in every little nook and cranny it can find for 30 years. This is going to take some time. But you are fasting like a champ. And you know what, I really keep those words like right in my heart, because, you know, some days you just go shoot, man, I want to eat, I want to eat with everyone else. But but the freedom. So I'm down, you know, a total of 50 pounds. I'm down 10 inches in my waist. I'm down two sizes of clothes. I only take insulin when I'm, um, really eating stuff that's higher in carbs. When I keep to the low carb, moderate protein, high fat, then I don't need it. And what about salt? So I went five days, the, uh, maybe like the, third time I did a water fast. And I did five days and I didn't take any salt. And I got kind of sick on the fourth day. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And Megan said, salt, 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 salt.
3: Now, after meeting with Kim the first time, it was very evident that the majority of her issues with fasting sprung from electrolyte imbalances. She definitely wasn't getting in enough salt in particular, but she just kept hitting that brick wall, hitting that brick wall where she just had to give up the fast. She was dizzy. She was a little bit nauseous. She was ravenous. And these are all common things that happen when your electrolytes aren't in check. When your electrolytes are really down and they're so vital for survival, potassium, sodium, chloride, magnesium, your body needs these things for survival and your levels drop so low, your body's going to turn on that hunger signal. That signal is going to tell you, hey, you need to eat. You need to eat now because this is now a matter of life and death. And we know you can get those electrolytes through food. So you get, you become ravenous when your electrolytes get low, even if you're not really hungry, or your body doesn't need food for fueling purposes, it needs it for electrolyte purposes. So now
2: I am really careful, I actually have tablets that I use, I take a teaspoon and a half, the equivalent of teaspoon and a half, every morning. And then if I need the additional half, I have those three tablets I can use. That's what
3: works for me. The pinches of salt were fine for a couple days and then ick. So Kim actually went online and she was able to get um, electrolyte tablets uh, or salt tablets. You can actually buy Himalayan salt tablets on Amazon.com. So Kim got some salt tablets and we talked about how much she should be taking. And she found that much easier to be compliant with it didn't taste funny to her It didn't cause her to run to the bathroom it was easy it was effortless so she was able to hydrate properly for the first time uh, throughout her fast and Kim actually made it to 17 days
2: but now like that 17 day fast no problems because I took my tablets every single morning like without fail
3: towards the end of the fast we met and follow up and she just started to cry. You know, she was just so overwhelmed with positive emotions. You know, She was electing not to eat for these 17 days. She was around people who were eating. She was cooking for people who were eating and she just didn't want it. She didn't feel the need to have it. So when you go from having to inject yourself with all kinds of insulin, and when you go from consuming a high-carbohydrate diet, which raises your own internal insulin levels, you feel so out of control when it comes to your hunger, and you just stuff your face left, right, and center sometimes. Nothing is satiating enough when you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet. Nothing is satiating enough. So for the first time in years, Kim said, I just didn't want it. I didn't need it. I had control. I wasn't being dictated by food every minute of the day, every day of the week. I was in control.
0: Before she started fasting, Kim was taking three diabetes medications, Levomir, Victoza, and Humalog. Here Kim describes how she adjusted her medication as she lost weight.
2: So the first month, I actually wrote it down so I could have the numbers, but I lost uh, 14 pounds in the first month. And in the second month, I lost 12, but I went off the Levamir and the Victosa. And then the third month I lost 16 pounds and I only needed the Humalog when I was eating.
0: One of the more surprising aspects about Kim's eating habits is that she actually does eat carby meals on occasion.
2: So as far as when I'm eating, I do mostly eat a low carb, moderate protein, like a ketogenic diet. But one of the things that I know really works for me is to really enjoy life and not feel deprived. And I guess because I've had such good results so far, I get it. The closer I am to goal weight or goal things, I'm going to have to tighten it up a bit. But quite honestly, what keeps me going is that I really love my life and I enjoy eating with people. And I don't have to change that too terribly much right now. So I'm not.
0: So the fasting actually allows her to eat some carby meals once in a while. And she can jump right back into a fast without too much pain or trouble and get right back to it. Sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? Well, I wanted to know what she's currently doing, what her current plans are, and her plans for the future.
2: I'm in the middle of a five-day fast right now, and what I want to do this month is see what this is like is to do four five-day fasts. So then I kind of fast. Pretty much from Sunday evening to Friday evening. And then I get that benefit of being able to eat with my husband on the weekends. And I don't know, I wanna see how that goes. I wanna see if I keep breaking up the diabetes, because I know I'm not there yet. And um, I know I'll just lose more weight, but that's not overly, Im- I mean, it's not the most important thing. I wanna keep breaking up the diabetes.
0: And speaking of diabetes, how about Kim's blood sugar? Where was it, and where is it now?: It's you know, in this long
2: 30 years, the highest my A1C was ever at was 13 point something. Right now, it's still elevated. So when I went off the meds, um, you know, blood sugars did go back up, but it was really important to me to stay off the meds. So it's down to a nine, and I know I need to keep going, but again, that's just what I need to do. I just need to keep going. And um, my blood sugar was really good the years after I had the surgery. It was down to like a seven, which I had never seen probably since I was diagnosed. So I, I just don't ever regret the surgery. It's just a part of what had to happen to get me to where I'm at.
0: So Kim is at the beginning of her journey. It's only been five months since she started fasting and changing her eating habits. Her blood sugar still needs to come down, yet for the first time in her life, she feels like she is in the driver's seat. She overcame bad dietary advice. She realized that her condition wasn't her fault. She learned how to overcome it, and she's doing just that.
3: In the past, we all have beaten ourselves up so much about it being a battle of wills when it hasn't. We're told we're not good enough. We're told we don't have enough willpower. And it beats down on us. It wears us down. But Kim, she finally had the ability to say that it was never my fault. It was totally out of my control. I am not a failure. And if given the right tools, I can be extremely, extremely successful. Oh well, she's
2: just a you know, she's just a delight. And what I really enjoy about working with hers is yes, there's the very good information she has, but she she takes it out of this place of there's something wrong that you need to fix about yourself to this joyful, enlivening experience of, oh, look what we can do. Look what can happen. And that is my favorite part about Megan.
0: Kim says she couldn't have done it without the support of a caring community, both within the IDM program and on social media.
2: I share with a lot of people. So since I started this whole journey and people have watched me and I share on Facebook, I mean, there's been like 60 people that have taken some portion of this on for themselves. And it's just exciting to be part of a community. Like we're all really going for something that's amazing. I mean, it just sort of boggles my mind when I think about what is possible for people out of this. So... And Megan and Dr. Fung, I mean, I've not met him, but certainly, you know, I enjoy how he speaks. I enjoy that he's he laughs and he jokes and he he just makes it all really light. It's, it is serious, but it's also light and playful. And I really respond to that.
0: I asked Kim what her biggest challenge was in her journey to wellness.
2: So my biggest challenge was the... Absolute cynicism and resignation that anything would ever, ever get better. Like, I just, I just, you know, and what a, you know, I'm a hospice nurse for God's sake. I see people at the end of life. I see it every day. And I knew that that was also my future. So, you know, and that, that went over decades that wasn't just oh I had a bad couple of months no this is decades so I would say that's the hardest and to to feel like I am someone who does like do what I'm asked to do like I did what they told me to do and it didn't work and that feeling like I was the failure and so when Dr. Fung, in that first video I saw of him, when he said, you know, we blame the patients, I'm like, yeah, and, and I get it. I mean, I'm not even, I mean, there's times I'm mad that it's been 30 years, but I don't have time to be mad. I just want to move forward and let people know that this is available. But truly, that's terrible. It's terrible that people feel that way, especially when they are actually doing something and then you sink into that cynicism and resignation, and then you don't care anymore. If I can't be better doing what you're telling me to do, then screw it. I'm just going to eat what I want.
3: was so beaten down prior to fasting by everyone telling her what a failure she was at this that it was just such an amazing high for her to have succeeded with this fast. So today Kim's done all kinds of crazy fasts, Um, she's lost an amazing amount of weight in such a short period of time, her blood sugar levels are getting there, I mean it's a long process, you can't expect to erase decades worth of diabetes in a few months, but she's getting there, her medication has been drastically reduced for Kim. I think the biggest message that she can share with other people is don't beat yourselves up for this. This is totally out of your control. But you do have two tools that can help you regain control. You have fasting, which really hammers down those insulin levels. And once those insulin levels are down, you get the control back. And you have a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet.
0: Many of us who have had success with a low-carb diet and or fasting have no doubt experienced pushback from our family and friends. I asked Kim if she had experienced this, and interestingly, she said, no, not really. Her friends and family trust her judgment. Maybe that's because she's a nurse. Maybe it's because she has a reputation for only recommending things that she truly believes in.
2: I feel extremely loved. And people just want me to be well. Sorry. Yeah, so people just want me to be well. And you know, they also know who I am and that I don't I don't do frivolous things and I only recommend something that I've personally tried myself. And while I've had responses each month, like I post each month and people are like, Yay, go, yay! But, you know, after four months and I showed the picture of the before and current, I mean what are you gonna argue with? This works. And it's working. And I'm not saying I'm, I've am i arrived anywhere. And I'm not saying I'm not going to have to do this for the rest of my life in some fashion. I don't think I'm going to have to do, you know, extended fasts all the time. But I I wouldn't mind if I did. And I think people know me well enough to know that I would never ever recommend something that I didn't think that there was something possible in it for them.
0: Congratulations, Kimberly. You've done a great job, and we're all proud of you. And that's our story for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto, LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can help support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.